High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we bring you another chapter in our series, Star Wars. Today's star is the Austrian actress Hedy Lamarr. As a teenage stage actress in 1930s Vienna, Hedy was branded as the most beautiful girl in the world. That branding stuck, and it didn't evolve, even after becoming one of the highest paid and most famous stars in Hollywood during World War II, Hetty was always referred to as a girl, never a woman. Her star identity was insolent and submissive, imbued with both world weariness and a kind of naivete when it came to the destructive impact of her beauty. One critic took note of her, quote, perfect willlessness in her first Hollywood film, Algiers, commenting, Miss Lamar doesn't have to say yes. All she has to do is yawn. Hetty's beauty made her a sensation, but it also doomed her. She was considered just a pretty face, and as she aged, there were prettier, younger faces waiting to replace her. 
By the end of the 1940s, American culture had changed so much that Hetty seemed a little dated. Over the next few decades, she drifted into obscurity, and then after a shoplifting arrest and a series of lawsuits, her name itself became a joke. And then, in the last years of her life, Hetty was suddenly championed for her secret, theretofore unheralded invention, which was intended to help the Allies win World War II, but which in the end aided the development of cell phones, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and even drone warfare. Join us, won't you, for the unbelievable true story of Hetty Lamar. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover, Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. Hetty was born Hedvig Kiesler in 1913 in Vienna. Her family was Jewish, and although she wasn't observant, she kept her Jewish heritage a secret, not just during the Nazi era, but throughout her entire life. After meeting director Max Reinhardt at a party at the age of 16, Hetty dropped out of school with designs on becoming an actress. She appeared on the stage, and then, at age 17 in 1931, Hetty was cast in her first film, in Ecstasy, directed by the Czech filmmaker Gustav Makati, Hetty played Eva, the trophy wife of a much older, wealthy man. Realizing she made a mistake in marrying, Eva leaves her loveless marriage and has an affair with a strapping young construction worker. When Eva's ex-husband finds out that she's moved on, he kills himself. Eva allows the young dude to think she's going to travel to Berlin with him, but she leaves him while he's asleep and heads off alone into the unknown. Incredibly ahead of its time in terms of the agency it gives its heroine, Ecstasy is often misidentified as the first film to show on-screen nudity, which it wasn't. But it may have been the first feature film to dramatize sexual intercourse. One of the producers of the film later declared that thousands of feet of film had been burned because the sexually charged footage was too real, given that Hetty was having an off-screen affair with her co-star at the time. Hetty claimed that when she was unable to give the film's director the ecstatic facial expressions he wanted, he got it by repeatedly jabbing her off-camera backside with a safety pin. Ecstasy was banned in Germany, not for its sexual content, but because its cast and crew were full of Jews. Those who didn't reject the film's sight unseen tended to champion it as a highly artistically advanced work of serious cinema. Either way, it made Hetty Kiesler notorious, and the attention it attracted to the barely legal young actress 
must have been hard for her to take. So when in real life, a much older, wealthy man gave her the hard marriage cell, it must have seemed like a good idea to trade her notoriety for a quiet life as a trophy wife. In 1933, Hetty married Fritz Mandel, a weapons mogul, Austrian nationalist, and supplier of munitions to a number of bad, bad guys, including Mussolini and eventually Hitler, who for a while allowed the Jewish Mandel the status of honorary Aryan. Hetty agreed to quit acting professionally to devote herself to the role of kept woman, she became decoration at Fritz's business dinners, which regularly included the likes of Mussolini. After a brief honeymoon period, Fritz enacted his own version of fascism in the home. He cut off Hetty's charge accounts and permitted her only a small allowance, which she soon began to hoard. Her phone calls were surveilled. When he would travel, the staff at the house was told that Hetty was not allowed to leave the Mons on her own. At the age of 19, Hetty felt as though she was living, as she put it later, in a prison of gold. In 1934, when ecstasy was submitted to censors in the United States for potential release, Fritz threw his considerable wealth and power into trying to buy up every print of the film he could find in order to have them burned. This made headlines and impacted the film's distribution fate, as did condemnation from the Pope. The print was impounded at New York City Customs under the edicts of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, and after a couple of months, it was officially declared indecent and banned from exhibition. A number of appeals followed. One in July 1935 resulted in a New York federal judge ordering that the film print be burned. But by 1936, ecstasy was cleared for U.S. release. An international fantasy object, in real life, Hetty was still suffocating in Mandel's Vienna manse. She got used to quietly listening while the men at the dinner table discussed various arms deals and the research being done by the Third Reich on things like radio-controlled weapons. One night at dinner, her husband's invited guest was a British colonel who expressed his distaste for the Nazi movement. When Fritz left the room, Hetty begged the colonel, "'Please, could you help me get out of Vienna?' Somewhat begrudgingly, the colonel told Hetty that if she could contact him at his hotel, he would try to help her. Later that night, Hetty was getting ready for bed when Fritz came into her boudoir, carrying a record of what he said was a Strauss waltz that he wanted her to hear. He put the record on the Victrola, and Hetty heard the sound of her own voice. Please, could you help me get out of Vienna? Mandel tightened his reins after that. Fritz held the key to the safe where Hetty's jewels were kept, but he apparently didn't notice when she'd returned her accessories at the end of the night minus a few gems, which she secretly sent on to a confidant in Paris who would sell the jewels and secrete the money away for Hetty. And then one night, when Fritz was away on a hunting trip, Hetty drugged a servant who was about her size, put on the maid's uniform, and snuck out of the house and hopped the Trans-Europe Express to Paris. About to check into a hotel there, Hetty was greeted with a cable from her maid, informing her that her husband was on his way to Paris to bring the refugee home. So Hetty went straight back to the train station. From Calais, she took a boat to London, where, it just so happened, MGM president Louis B. Mayer was finishing up some business before boarding a ship back to the United States. Hetty and Mayer had met once before, at a dinner arranged by director Max Reinhardt, and Mayer, who had seen Ecstasy, had told Hetty then that no actress who had appeared naked in a European movie would ever have a career in Hollywood. 
Nonetheless, Hetty got in touch with an MGM talent scout she knew in London, who arranged a meeting between the runaway bride and the movie mogul. Mayer was always happy to see a pretty girl, but again, he had no intention of helping Hetty out. Never get away with that stuff in Hollywood, he told her. A woman's ass is for her husband. You're lovely, my dear, but I have the family point of view. Hetty protested that she had been very young when she made Ecstasy and didn't really know what she was doing and, in fact, had been forced into filming those scenes. Mayer took pity on Hetty and told her he'd give her a standard entry-level contract if she would pay her own way to Hollywood. But Hetty turned him down. She wanted more. Just before Mayer's boat was to depart, though, Hetty changed her mind, and the talent scout suggested she board the ocean liner, posing as the governess of a teenage violin prodigy who was also taking the crossing. She did, and Mayer was so impressed with Hetty's moxie that he upped his offer. By the time the boat docked in New York, Hetty was MGM's newest contract player, and she had a new name, Hetty Lamar. Hetty settled in Hollywood, but Mayer wouldn't cast her in anything until her English improved. She started watching movies, as many as she could fit into a day, hoping the language would sink in. She was lonely and could sometimes be spotted at the Brown Derby, having dinner all by herself, until she met British comedian Reggie Gardner, who would become Hetty's constant companion. Her spirits improved somewhat, but Mayer still refused to give her work. Then, at a party in February 1938, Hetty met French actor Charles Boyer, who had been looking for a female lead for his new picture. Boyer was immediately entranced by Hetty, and that night he introduced her to the film's producer, Walter Wenger. When they thought Hetty was out of earshot, Wenger confirmed Boyer's good taste. He said, She has small tits, but a magnificent face. This assessment of Hetty's assets will become important later. The film Boyer and Wenger cast Hetty in was called Algiers. A remake of the French film Pepe Lamoco, it would feature Hetty as the stunning woman of mystery employed to lure a charismatic criminal into a trap set by the police. Hetty was only in about six scenes, and she did more acting with her eyes than with her voice. Her English had progressed a bit, but she still had to learn her lines phonetically and trust that her beauty would carry her through. And it did. After filming, Hetty went on vacation in Mexico, where she likely obtained her divorce from Fritz Mandel. And then Hitler invaded Austria. In May of 1938, it was reported that the Third Reich had slapped Mandel with an eight-figure tax bill. He had had a falling out with the Nazis, escaped first to Paris and then Brazil, and then Argentina. Now it was Hetty's ex-husband who was the refugee. Algiers was a major hit in 1938, a year in which, as we've discussed before, Hollywood literally couldn't bribe most Americans to see most of their films, and its impact would prove to be pivotal. Hedy Lamarr and Algiers occupies a kind of midway point between Marlena Dietrich and her first Hollywood film, Morocco, and Ingrid Bergman and her biggest Hollywood hit, Casablanca. Marlena Dietrich in Morocco is the most, shall we say, pre-code of the bunch, a cabaret girl who flaunts her kinky sexuality and chooses over life as a trophy wife to risk her life wandering in the desert in pursuit of a probably doomed romance with Gary Cooper. Bergman in Casablanca is the most docile version of the European woman of mystery, 
As morally angelic as a cheating wife gets, she uses her sexual powers to inspire Humphrey Bogart to join the fight against the Nazis. Hedy's Gabby in Algiers is a complacent kept woman who's never had any other ambition until she meets the dashing Pepe and realizes what it is to love. But she knows all too well that inspiring Pepe to love her back is tantamount to putting a bullet in his back herself. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. Algiers was released into a climate in which studios were tired of paying top salaries for their biggest female stars, and exhibitors championed the need for fresh blood by branding women like Katharine Hepburn and Joan Crawford as box office poison. Hetty couldn't have been more different than a headstrong patrician like Katharine Hepburn or a working girl like Joan Crawford. In her exoticism, she was somewhat more like a Garbo or a Dietrich, but those comparisons didn't really fit either, because Hetty, or at least the Hetty of Algiers and several of her subsequent hits, didn't invite audience identification. Hetty was a throwback to the exotic, mysterious, implicitly sexual, and yet never vulgar and almost unemotional type of screen woman that had flourished in the silent era and hadn't really been seen since. Hetty made movie viewers remember an almost mystical femininity of a time long before women went to work and wore practical shoes. A time of, as one fan magazine put it, perfumes and laces and spangled fans and beauty spots and lovers who die for us. And yet, Hetty's star-making debut inspired several of the dominant fashions of the 1940s. Her silhouette in Algiers, with her slim skirt suits and broad shoulders, a slightly masculine shape designed to counterbalance Hetty's extreme beauty, looks more 1945 than 1938. The 1940s vogue for turbans and snoods can also be traced directly to the very specific type of headwear Hetty modeled in Algiers. Her sudden popularity inspired a rush on raven hair dye, and she became ever associated with a style of wavy hair parted straight down the middle. 
off the clock, Hetty did little to burnish her rep as a glamour puss. She didn't drink, she was rarely spotted at the fashionable clubs, and she eschewed big fets for intimate dinner parties. She spent a lot of her money building a prodigious art collection, and in her free time, she sat at a drafting table in her drawing room, sketching out ideas for inventions. No one was more cynical about Hetty's appeal than Hetty herself. She famously said, Any girl can be glamorous. All she has to do is to stand still and look stupid. The success of Algiers became a kind of albatross for Hetty. Louis B. Mayer was careful about what he cast her in, perhaps too careful. He tried to engineer for her a prestige project, hiring Spencer Tracy to co-star and Josef von Sternberg to direct something called New York Cinderella. You've never heard of this film because by the time it was finished, it had a different director and a different title. Sternberg quit after two weeks of shooting, after having had enough of Mayer, who had taken an unusual interest in this particular production, and was essentially trying to backseat direct it from his perch as head of the studio. Sternberg was replaced by Frank Borzaghi, but by January 1939, the film now called I Take This Woman was pulled from production and shelved. Later that year, it was dragged out of its grave once again, this time with W.S. Woody Van Dyke at the helm. All this mishigas diluted Hetty's momentum somewhat, and when the resurrected I Take This Woman performed sluggishly at the box office, Louis B. Mayer started to lose interest in Hetty. In March 1939, she married Jean Markey, who became the second of Hetty's six husbands, none of whom lasted long. When Hetty could not become pregnant, the couple adopted a son, who they called Jamesy. But Jean Markey was gone by the summer of 1940. A single mom whose short-lived career was already in a slump, Hetty started thinking about what she could do to amp up her appeal. She read an article in Esquire magazine about endocrinology, which suggested that a person's glandular makeup could be managed and manipulated. Hetty was concerned about two of her glands in particular. She was insecure about the size of her breasts, not least because she often heard people in Hollywood, including Louis B. Mayer, belittling them. So Hetty asked her friend, the costume designer Adrian, to introduce her to the author of the article, George Antal. George Antal was an avant-garde composer, moonlighting as a magazine journalist and film scorer. He had moved to Hollywood in the mid-1930s, and in between jobs writing film scores, he had published a number of articles in major magazines, including a series on tips he got from his diplomat brother, which seemed to accurately predict various events in the run-up to the war, and a number of articles purporting the use of science, including endocrinology, as an aid to seduction. At a dinner party at Adrian's house, when the subject of Hetty's breasts came up, Antal agreed that they were too small, and added, they don't really have to be, you know. Can they be made bigger? Hetty asked. George said, oh yes. Hetty thrust out her chest. Bigger than this? George responded, yes, 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 yes. When she left the dinner party, Hetty wrote her number in lipstick on George's car windshield. The next time they had dinner, it was just the two of them at her place, and they talked in more depth about extracts and potions that Hetty could use to increase her bust. But they also talked about the war. 
it was clear the summer of 1940 that the U.S. was going to have to get involved in World War II. The only question was when. Already the nation's shipping trade had been severely compromised by German submarines. Hetty told George all about the dinner conversations she used to listen to back at Fritz Mandel's house. She told him that the Germans were concerned about their difficulties targeting and controlling missiles. Torpedoes would regularly miss their targets or hit them and fail to explode. Hetty had had a lot of time to think about the munitions problem she had overheard at those dinners, and she had thought a lot about potential solutions. She was heartbroken over a number of recent tragedies, including the drowning of over 70 child refugees when the ship that was supposed to be carrying them to safety was struck by a U-boat torpedo. And she told him that she really felt she should do something for the war effort, something other than star in stupid movies. She was thinking, she said, of quitting Hollywood altogether, of going to Washington to join the National Inventors Council. Antal was a self-styled inventor, too, whose personal work was heavily influenced by the machine age. Born in New Jersey, he had been something of a piano prodigy who longed to compose in a distinctly American style. He traveled to Europe as a young man, living in Berlin and in the early 1920s, settling in Paris. He lived above Shakespeare and Company for almost 10 years and hung out with Igor Stravinsky, Ezra Pound, Man Ray, and Fernand Leger. For the latter's film, Ballet Mécanique, Antal composed a score which eventually outgrew its cinematic function and became a symphony, designed for two grand pianos played by live pianists, three xylophones, four bass drums, a gong, three airplane propellers, seven electric bells, a siren, and 16 player pianos playing in synchronicity. Which was, at that point, completely impossible. In 1927, George did manage to synchronize four player pianos in a performance at Carnegie Hall, but 16 would have been beyond the capabilities of the technology, and no innovations in player piano technology were forthcoming. By 1924, radio had made major inroads in the market of people who wanted to listen to music at home, rendering player pianos all but obsolete. But the basic material that player pianos played, the punched paper scrolls, was an early form of binary data programming. Hetty's idea, as she presented it to Antal, was to set up a remote-controlled torpedo, utilizing a system of wireless communication so that the signals controlling the weapon remotely would be impossible for the enemy to jam. This would be accomplished by having both the transmitter of the signal and the receiver constantly shift frequencies at random but in unison. Hetty called this concept frequency hopping. Antal suggested they borrow a mechanism from one of his own inventions, a piano teaching tool called C-Note, which involved two synchronized player piano scrolls, each of them equipped with 88 frequencies. Hetty and George started meeting regularly to perfect what was now a collaborative concept for a weapon which could be operated by a frequency hopping signal controlled by ribbons, perforated with instructive data in the style of player piano scrolls. They first contacted the National Inventors Council in December 1940, and the response was encouraging. In June 1941, they submitted a patent application for what they were now calling the Secret Communication System, with Hetty using her married name, Hetty Kiesler Markey, on the patent. While they waited for the U.S. government to validate their innovation, Hetty went back to her less-than-satisfying life, 
as a movie star. She wore what would become a legendary headdress in the Judy Garland-Lana Turner musical Ziegfeld Girl, but she lost a number of roles to Ingrid Bergman in For Whom the Bell Tolls, and eventually Casablanca, for which Mayer refused to loan Hetty out to Warner Brothers. She went on the obligatory handful of dates with Howard Hughes, who generously paid a pair of chemists to help Hetty realize another of her inventions for bouillon-style cubes for soda pop. Hetty was shooting a Steinbeck adaptation, Tortilla Flats, with John Garfield and Spencer Tracy on the morning of December 7th, 1941. With the bombing of Pearl Harbor, now Hetty was more impatient than ever to do something for her adopted country. Instead, she was cast as a biracial African in a terrible film called White Cargo. But she also began appearing regularly on the radio, often reprising her films as radio plays, and this put Hetty into Americans' living rooms, turning her into one of the most familiar stars of the era. In February 1942, Hetty and George were informed that the U.S. government had declined to produce their torpedo on the grounds that it seemed too heavy. George Antal suspected that they had made a misstep in acknowledging that their double-cylinder sync system was inspired by the player piano. He imagined the War Department reading the patent documentation and imagining a full-size piano strapped to a torpedo, when in fact, the device in question was about the size of a pocket watch. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. When Henny and George got word that their patent application was accepted, they turned the patent over to the U.S. government in the hopes that it would be useful in the ongoing war somehow. And Hetty again suggested that she should quit movies and go to Washington to help out on the innovation front. But the government was like, nah. Hetty was told her talents would be better put to work inspiring the sale of war bonds. And she headed out that month as one of a number of stars on a $1 billion war bond drive. 
Hetty was a huge success as a war bond salesman. Crowds went crazy for her. As many as 20,000 people would show up to see her deliver these lines. At the end of the 10-day, 16-city tour, Hetty had personally sold $25 million in bonds. Back in Hollywood, Hetty helped out at the Hollywood Canteen, where she was so dedicated that Friday nights were branded Hetty Lamar Night. Those were the nights she tried to dance with every soldier in the place. But she'd also help out in the kitchen. On Christmas night in 1942, Hetty washed dishes alongside a British actor named John Loder. Loder would soon become the third future ex-Mr. Lamar. By the time the Allies invaded France in July 1944, 30-year-old Hetty was finally pregnant. But her year-old marriage to Loder was already on the rocks. In 1943, Hetty had sued MGM over a contract dispute, which ended with Hetty getting the raise she wanted, but she missed out on a lot of good movies. She turned down Otto Preminger's Laura, and her refusal to take anything less than top billing meant it was Ingrid Bergman, not Hetty, who starred in and won an Oscar for Gaslight. And Hetty's relationship with Mayer was irreparably broken. Hetty did make a couple of good films in the 1940s. I Like the Conspirators, a sort of Casablanca-adjacent thriller about resistance fighters in Lisbon. But when her original seven-year contract ran out, Hetty left MGM, confident that she'd do better as a free agent. She started a production company in order to generate her own films, the first of which, a period melodrama called The Strange Woman, is aptly titled, with Headley in the type of I'll-get-mine-by-any-means-necessary role that Betty Davis would have been more obviously suited for. But Hetty is exciting to watch playing against type, and the movie has a crazy energy to it. In her next production, Dishonored Lady, producer Hetty cast her husband, John Loder, and the unhappy married spent the production needling one another. By the time it was over, Hetty found herself pregnant again. She told Loder she wanted a divorce. By now, the war was over. Ironically, considering she repeatedly claimed she had one foot out the door of Hollywood during this time, Hetty hit the peak of her popularity during the war. With her whistle-stop tours and radio appearances, more than her films, keeping her at the forefront of the public consciousness. She coasted through the rest of the decade on the success of two significant hits, Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah, in which she played Delilah, and as the sex factor in the Bob Hope flick My Favorite Spy. But the next few years were increasingly tough. Her production company turned out to be a financial disaster. By the time she hit her mid-30s, she found her physical stamina for long shooting days waning. She simply just didn't really want to work. And she had acquired a reputation for being difficult. And worse than that, expensive. She refused to promote the movie she appeared in unless her lavish expenses were taken care of, a condition that studios began to decline. She married a number of men impulsively. You couldn't live with a person in those days without being married, she'd say later. Although perhaps she was also anxious to find some kind of security as her career began to fall off. More than once, she announced she was leaving Hollywood to become a housewife. At one point, she auctioned off all of her belongings to join a new husband in Acapulco, where he ran a nightclub. But as soon as a marriage got tough, Hetty would inevitably head straight for the door and come crawling back to Hollywood looking for another chance. To add insult to injury, after Hetty left them, 
two of her husbands took up with Jean Tierney, an actress seven years Hetty's junior, who had taken up the mantle of the most beautiful brunette in Hollywood. Hetty had no patience, and if something wasn't working, she could cut ties without a second thought. She gave zero fucks, and not always in a good way. There was a time when Hetty didn't feel like going to one of her divorce hearings, so she sent her old Hollywood stand-in to court in her stead. Then there was the situation with her adopted son, Jamesy, who was sent to boarding school and had recurrent behavioral issues. When he got kicked out of a far-off academy and a local family offered to take him in, Hetty agreed, and essentially disowned the son when he was just 11. By 1959, one columnist reported, Hetty's heart is heavy. Her beauty is gone. The former Viennese temptress is unwanted, unloved, unhappy. She does not work and has no immediate prospects in view. In 1961, Hetty was arrested for shoplifting from a department store in Los Angeles. She had walked out of the store wearing, and without paying for, a pair of gold slippers. The police found another couple of unpaid-for items in her purse, as well as two uncashed checks made out to Hetty, totaling $14,000. Hetty was having money problems. She was in danger of being evicted from her home. But word soon spread that she was having mental problems, too. On the stand at her trial, Hetty told the jury that a couple of weeks before the shoplifting incident, she had seen the film The Pawnbroker and had been traumatized by her own memories of fleeing Europe. Hetty was acquitted of the charges, maybe because the jury felt bad for her, and the next day she sued the department store for defamation. Hetty soon became notorious for her frivolous lawsuits, often involving the unsanctioned use of her name or image by advertisers. In 1974, when Mel Brooks named a character Hedley Lamar in Blazing Saddles, he included one joke in the film directly poking fun at Hetty's lawsuit habit. Thank you, Hetty, thank you. It's not Hetty, it's Hedley, Hedley Lamar. The hell are you worried about? This is 1874. You'll be able to sue her. (laughs) (laughs) Hetty turned around and sued Brooks for $10 million, citing invasion of privacy. Perhaps the most embarrassing legal scandal came in the mid-60s, when Hetty accepted an advance for her autobiography, which was to be written by a ghostwriter working from audio tapes recorded by Hetty herself. The deal was that Hetty would get the second half of her money when she signed off on the manuscript. By the time it arrived, Hetty was so desperate for cash that she signed off without reading it. When she finally got around to reading the book, titled Ecstasy and Me, she realized it was full of fiction much of it depicting Hetty as sex-obsessed to a fault. On page 157, quote-unquote Hetty boasts of her ability to achieve, quote, uncountable orgasms. Three pages detail Hetty's introduction to lesbianism at boarding school in Switzerland, and there are five full pages devoted to the alleged orgies between cast and crew that took place on the set of the Bob Hope movie My Favorite Spy. Hetty brought a lawsuit against nine defendants, including a former psychiatrist whom Hetty suspected of selling tapes of her therapy sessions to the ghostwriter. 
Teddy's suits charged that the accused conspired and conceived a plan to defraud and exploit her and to deprive her valuable literary motion picture and other property rights to her life story at the expense of her good name, fame, and fortune. The suit was dismissed, basically laughed out of court. Hetty got nothing, and the topic of ecstasy and me would remain a sore spot for the rest of her life. She started having plastic surgery. Two facelifts, a leg lift, a knee lift, a hand lift. By 1975, she was nearly blind from cataracts and collecting social security due to her disability. After an operation on her eyes, she moved to Florida, where she was arrested for shoplifting again in 1991. This time, the prosecutor declined to press charges. She refused to accept a tribute from the Telluride Film Festival unless they agreed to pay for her exorbitant expenses, which they would not. Usually when we get to this point in one of our stories, I whip out the sad music, and then I tell you how the person died. But Hedy Lamar's story has a late, late, late act twist. After the war ended, Hetty and George heard nothing about their invention for years. In 1957, unbeknownst to the inventors, engineers at the Sylvania Electronic Systems Division figured out how to modify the patent to put electronic circuits in place of the paper player piano rolls. The patent on the secret communication system then expired in 1959, the same year George Antal died. Three years later, in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Navy engineers borrowed Hetty's concept of frequency hopping to develop a secure communication system involving aquatic sonar boys, or sono boys. During the Vietnam War, the military further expanded the use of frequency hopping, which they were now calling FHSS, or Frequency Hopping Spread Spectrum, to control a surveillance drone. This was all classified, and no one knew about it outside of the military. In 1981, George and Hetty's patent was declassified. Building off the FHSS innovations, the FCC established what was now being called spread spectrum, in which a specific radio spectrum was used to secure cellular telephone signals. Even in her semi-seclusion in Florida, Hetty was well aware that her concept of frequency hopping had paved the way for a new technological wave. And in typical Hetty fashion, she thought she deserved more reward than she was getting. I can't understand why there's no acknowledgement when it's used all over the world, she told an interviewer in 1990. Never a letter, never a thank you, never money. I don't know, I guess they just take and forget about a person. But by the 1990s, cell phone giants began to acknowledge Hedy Lamar's contribution to their industry's essential technology. Franklin Antonio, the technical officer of Qualcomm, said, I read the patent. You don't usually think a movie star is having brains, but she sure did. Money followed the acknowledgement. In the late 1990s, a company called YLAN, the creators of high-speed Wi-Fi, took over aspects of the patent and began sending Hetty residual payments in the process. But Hetty was still Hetty. When a drawing of Hetty was used on the box front of the PC software program Corel Draw, Hetty, who had played the stock market and had cashed in on an early investment in Microsoft, sued Corel for $15 million, charging unauthorized use of her likeness. The two parties settled out of court, 
and Hetty took her multi-million dollar payday and bought a new house in Florida, where she lived essentially as a recluse until the end of her days. One morning in January 2000, Hetty's housekeeper came into Hetty's bedroom and found that Hetty's body was cold. She had gone to sleep with a full face of makeup on, with her will tucked underneath her body. To the very last second, Hetty Lamar was thinking about the future. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode, like all of our episodes, was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more episodes and more information about this episode at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, and please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. If you like the podcast, tell somebody about it, and or rate and review it on iTunes. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.